0: Hey, just a note. I'm so excited to announce that Method and Madness is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. This festival is for you, the listeners, and is designed around your desire to mingle and interact with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Check out all the details at truecrimepodcastfestival.com, including info on how to get your tickets and hotel reservations. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I hope to see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of suicide and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. A serial killer, now convicted of two murders in the first degree, is looked at as a possible suspect in his father's death. This is Method and Madness, episode 42, The Murder of Wayne Millard. I'm your host, Don Gandhi.
1: The body. ...was dismembered. A
0: ransom note was discovered. hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman.
1: There may be a clue in a released 911 call that from... The victim said she was stopped for five years.
0: ...held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. And revenge. Method. And madness. Previously on Method and Madness, the murder of Ancaster man Tim Bosma in May 2013 shocked Canada and the globe, a 32-year-old husband and father of one who was murdered senselessly while taking two strangers out for a test drive. The arrests of the two suspects resulted in police taking a second look at the disappearance of a 23-year-old woman. Laura Babcock was reported missing in July of 2012, but due to some hardships she was facing at the time, including mental illness and cocaine use, police were reluctant to treat her case as anything but a runaway situation. But thanks to the persistence of her family and friends, police conducted a search of the property owned by the last person Laura contacted. Dellen Millard, the murderer of Tim Bosma. He and his friend Mark Smitch were convicted of first-degree murder in the case of Tim in June 2016 and in the case of Laura in December 2017. Dellen Millard was the heir to a family fortune. His father, the CEO of Millard Air, an aviation business, had died in 2012, and Dellen inherited the company and the millions that came along with it. But Dellen, 28 years old in 2013, was revealed to be more than a rich, eligible bachelor. He was being revealed as a serial killer. And he'd found someone to assist him in what he called missions. His friend, Mark Smitch, a young man who'd hopped from job to job and sold drugs on the side. The mishandling of Laura's disappearance prompted the public particularly those closest to Laura, to wonder, what if law enforcement had taken her case more seriously? What if Delon Millard, who Laura had called eight times on her final day on Earth, what if he was interviewed by law enforcement right away? Would Tim Bosma still be alive today? Would Laura Babcock's body have been found? And yet another question comes up, which brings us to today's case, the death of Wayne Millard, Dellen's father. Initially ruled a suicide by the coroner, police were revisiting Wayne's cause of death once Dellen was arrested for the murder of Tim Bosma. Did Dellen Millard kill his own father and make it look like a suicide? And if so, why? Today, we'll discuss Wayne's story, as well as an update that affects Delan Millard's and Mark Smitch's sentences, as the Supreme Court of Canada declares their punishments and others like theirs unconstitutional. But first, let's try to make sense of who Dylan Millard is and what makes him tick. Let's dive in. We first took a look at patricide in episode nine, the murder of Richard Janke. In that case, we walked through the horrific physical abuse that a wife and her two children were subjected to for years. How a teenager felt he had no escape, no solution, but to finally silence his abuser once and for all. And so he and his sister lie in wait and their abuser, their own father, was shot dead when he returned to their home one night. It's a concept we see in mythology, in history, in the present day, for a variety of reasons—jealousy, revenge, money. Trying to unravel the why of this case is simple yet complex, because the why may be an easy answer, but understanding it may be an exercise in futility. At this point, we know that Dylan Millard has murdered two people in two separate unrelated events— which technically makes him a serial killer, as defined by the FBI in 2005. And if not for the trail of evidence he left behind after the murder of Tim Bosma, he may have kept going. Same goes for Mark Smith. Is Dellen Millard a unique serial killer? Is there another like him? We know that Dellen had advantages growing up, coming from a wealthy family and attending private schools. His hobbies ranged from skydiving to racing, flying planes. He was charming, generous, and easily made friends. We don't know a lot about the dynamics of his family, except that his parents divorced when he was 11. The way that his mother talks about him, which we'll get to, it paints a picture of a boy who was given every opportunity, a life of adventure, which he continued to chase into adulthood and he was doted on by his parents. From the evidence that we had looked at in the murder of Tim and the murder of Laura, and based on what the Crown attorneys presented about Dellen getting a thrill out of his crimes, let's look at Dellen through the lens of a thrill killer. We briefly touched on it in a previous episode, that the thrill killer gets their satisfaction from the process of the murder, the planning, the planning, the stalking, the capturing of their victim. And some sources say that thrill killing falls under a broader category, the hedonistic type of serial killer. A hedonistic killer wants to kill for the pleasure it brings them, whether it's a sexual desire, financial motive, or quite simply, the thrill to kill. They see people as expendable. It doesn't matter to them if the victim deserves life. Under the category of hedonistic killer, you have the lust killer, the thrill killer, and the comfort killer. A lust killer is exactly what it sounds like. They're driven by the sexual gratification that the murder provides them. Raping and torturing their victim. Necrophilia. Fantasizing about the crime for a period of time before they even select their victim. What comes to mind right away? Who comes to mind? Dahmer? Kemper? And once they complete... That first murder, they get addicted to that high, that lust. A comfort killer is one that is mostly seeking financial gain or some form of an improved quality of life. Think the black widow poisoning her husband. A thrill killer can get their thrill, their adrenaline rush, from the act itself, the feeling of power it gives them. They may enjoy watching their victim run or enjoy watching the fear they instill in their victim— Most notably, under the category of thrill killer, you have the Zodiac, who certainly got a thrill from sending cryptic, taunting messages to police. There was that thrill of holding the key to the murders over others, that thrill of catch me if you can. There can also be a crossover between categories, such as between a hedonistic killer and a power-slash-control killer. I'd be interested in knowing if psychologists would classify Dellen Millard as a cross between a hedonistic killer and something else. He doesn't seem to fall completely under the thrill killer type. Ted Bundy falls under the power-slash-control serial killer and in some ways has similarities to Dellen Millard. Both come across as charming and harmless, on the surface anyway. Both were confident in the way they carried themselves, And they used that charm to get what they wanted in the darkest way. But Dellen is different in that his M.O. differs from crime to crime. The overall sense that I got from Laura Babcock's murder is that they killed her because they thought they could. If we're to assume that Dellen and and Mark Smith murdered Laura for the thrill, the thrill of the planning, the executing the luring her to Dylan's house, the thrill of using their huge animal incinerator to dispose of a body, the thrill of knowing they made her disappear without anyone knowing. Well, that has some similarities to subsequent crimes. Look at the murder of Tim Bosma. It's similar in that they lured him. Their agenda was to kill him and steal his truck, but it was done under the guise of purchasing a truck. The thrill here of tricking someone into driving off into the night. The planning, the executing, and the disposing are similar to that of Laura's murder. But with Tim, did they just get sloppy? It was definitely more disorganized than Laura's murder. When we get to today's case, the differences in the crimes really come to light. And what we've learned over the past couple decades, studying true crime, studying serial killers, despite what criminologists earlier thought, murderers can change their M.O. Dellen Millard is a frustrating study to me because he's not a killer you can look at and figure out easily. Part of that is certainly because he denies he killed anyone, so there's little insight into his motive. We have the evidence to look at, and events that we can try to gain insight from. But we humans like answers that are tied up with a pretty bow. We can look at Ted Kaczynski, for example, and understand where he was coming from, in his mind, his mission, written in his own words. Was he a violent, dangerous man? Yes, of course. But the why, what he thought he was doing, the stand he was taking, the reasoning and the rationale literally laid out in his manifesto, and his motivations matched his crimes. When Dellen's crimes don't all point to the same motivations, but, well, they may all share a theme. A master's thesis written by Meher Sharma, a student of the Graduate Program in Clinical Psychology at Eastern Illinois University, goes into the study and development of serial killers, Here's one excerpt with sources credited from Dr. Katherine Ramsland. Serial killers may be born with a need for greater stimulation as compared to the average person. Ramsland stated that with low dopamine levels, quote, the person seeks more stimulation and new avenues of reward, thus being susceptible to addictive and compulsive pleasure-seeking behaviors. This combined with a dysfunctional prefrontal cortex, whose primary function is to regulate complex cognitive, emotional, and behavioral functioning, may result in the increase in desire and reduction in control of pleasure-seeking behaviors. Some of the psychosocial factors included in this study are childhood humiliation, neglect, abandonment, unstable and unhealthy relationships, that result in the incapability of forming emotional attachments. And then, of course, there are mental disorders. As you could imagine, there's theories out there that Dylan Millard displays narcissistic tendencies, and serial killers are often linked to narcissism. There's also psychopathy. We touched on this in the Dirty John miniseries, how Dr. Robert Hare created a psychopathy checklist Among the traits included are being glib and superficial, manipulative, impulsive, a need for excitement, and a lack of remorse or guilt. When this checklist or questionnaire is used, it's done on prisoners to assess their score. The maximum score is 40. Anyone scoring either 25 or 30, depending on the country, or higher out of 40 is diagnosed with a psychopathic personality. It's unknown if this checklist was administered to Dellen Millard, and I'm clearly not here to diagnose him, nor could I, but I was intrigued by several bullet points on the checklist, for one, glib and superficial. The psychopath can come across as charismatic and charming, reeling people in. A lack of reflectiveness or introspection. Their life is a constant search for entertainment and stimulation with no deeper reflection. The bottom line is... If you were to dig deeper, there would be nothing of substance there. Another trait, lack of remorse or guilt, and of course, this can be applied to the crimes, but Dr. Robert Hare also goes into detail about how a psychopath has no emotional hang-ups and doesn't give people's day-to-day lives or well-being a second thought. For psychopaths, all of this poor treatment of others means nothing to them emotionally It's just about getting from A to B in the easiest possible way. The feelings or needs of others literally do not matter to them. The need for excitement. A psychopath is, quote, almost always characterized by an extreme hedonism to their lifestyle. They are constantly looking to seek pleasure and excitement and avoid pain to an extreme degree. This means they are constantly looking for stimulation and excitement in their lives to counteract the relentless boredom and typically low physiological arousal they experience in the day-to-day life. The quote buzz needs to keep going constantly for them to feel alive. Among this need for excitement are behaviors like a relentless need to party, drink, and do recreational drugs, a relentless need for sex, Being drawn to dangerous sports, a lack of monogamy in physical relationships, being drawn to risky crimes to feel that high. A hedonistic psychopath commonly manifests as the quote, eternal playboy or man-child, unable to move past the hedonistic lifestyle and will behave as if they're 21 years old even in their 40s or 50s and beyond. His life is partying, socializing, using recreational drugs, womanizing. He needs to be around people. Needs the outer world, relies on it to give him excitement. We'll get to the trial toward the end of this episode with the Crown's theories that, with Dellen Millard, it was all about entitlement. Was there a perfect storm between traits that Dellen was born with Combined with his upbringing that led to his behavior? Can we ever truly understand it? Let's take a look at today's case. He believed we can make a difference in the world. With Wayne in my heart, I believe we must. That's the last line of Wayne Millard's obituary, penned by his son, Dellen Millard. Dellen lived with his father, Wayne, at 5 Maplegate Court in Etobicoke, a suburb of Toronto. This is the same home that Dellen took Laura to before killing her. Despite living with his father, Dellen hosted a lot of parties at this house. His father reportedly stayed in his bedroom most of the time. And it was in that bedroom where one afternoon in November 2012, Dellen made a discovery and called his mother to tell her he'd just found his father her ex-husband, dead. Wayne Millard was 71 years old, the CEO of Millard Air. His father, Carl, had found Millard Air in 1954 and built it into a thriving aviation firm. In the 70s and 80s, the company took on more of a business of sales and parts. Right before Wayne Millard's death, he had built a multi-million dollar hangar as an extension of his airline business. On August 30th, 1985, Wayne and his wife Madeline had their first and only child, who they named Dellen, after his grandmother, Dell. Dellen grew up in planes, sitting on a pile of cushions next to his father in the cockpit as a boy. He attended a private school, Toronto French School, and former classmates of his would later say that as a kid, he wasn't someone you'd look at and think, oh, this is a rich kid. Wayne would drive him to school in an old pickup truck, and Dellen dressed in a way that looked more like a, quote, hillbilly than an heir to a fortune. In 2006, Carl Millard died and Wayne took over as president, with Dellen as director. Dellen's friends described him as generous with his wealth, treating people to dinners but not necessarily flaunting his money. In May 2011, Dellen bought a farm in Ayr, Ontario, For $835,000. Weeks before his death, Wayne was making big plans for Millard Air and had moved the company from Toronto's Pearson Airport to Waterloo, where he had built the hangar. One of the most important things to him was to continue to invest in the business and build a strong legacy, one that he carried on for his father and he would hand over to his only child. And by November of 2012, Wayne was planning to celebrate his girlfriend's upcoming birthday. He was dating a woman named Janet Campbell, who was his cousin, though not by blood. The pair had dated decades earlier, before Wayne married Madeline. He last spoke to Janet the night of November 28, 2012. By the next morning, he was dead. Dellen said he last saw his father around noon on Wednesday, November 28th, and that that night he'd spent the night at the home of Mark Smitch. The following day, Thursday, November 29th, Dellen said he returned home around 6.30 p.m. and found his father in his bedroom, dead, blood on his pillow. He left the room and called his mother, who immediately drove over to the house, after she arrived, she went inside for about 10 minutes while Dellen stood outside. She then came back out and called 911. Wayne had a gunshot wound to his left eye. He was lying on his side, one hand tucked under his head on the pillow and the other hand, hanging off the bed, a trail of blood dripping to the floor. Next to the bed lie a black Lululemon reusable bag with a revolver laying on it. Police arrived, and Detective James Hutchin investigated the scene. He noted that Madeline was visibly shaken, and Dellen seemed very calm. Coroner Dr. David Evans examined Wayne's body once rigor mortis had set in, and it was apparent to him that the death had occurred approximately 18 hours earlier. He said it was suicide, but that it appeared suspicious. He denied he had moved the weapon, an accusation made by two police officers on the scene. An autopsy found that the bullet had entered Wayne's left eye and got lodged in the back of his head on the right side. Janet, Wayne's girlfriend, messaged him that day but didn't get a response back. It was Dylan, whom she'd never met, who responded with a message saying that his father had died and it appeared it was suicide. Janet was shocked. The day after, Friday, November 30th, Dellen was interviewed by detectives and he agreed to provide a statement. He said of his father, quote, he carried some great sadness with him throughout life that I never knew. He never wanted to share that with me, telling police that his father was depressed and an alcoholic. Here is some of that interview where Dellen describes the discovery of his father, the night before. I'd been uh, working at our family business in Waterloo.
1: Um, I came in through the side door. That's the door most everybody uses in the house. And um, I opened up the next door, which leads to the cat area of the house. is the door from the kitchen to the hallway and then my dog, Petto, was waiting for me there. Um, And I walked down the hallway and I walked to my room and um, I picked a sweater out of the closet. It had been a cold day. And then I was on my way back to the kitchen to make a snack and I noticed that my father seemed to still be asleep in bed, which was odd because it was, um, late in the afternoon there. and so I pulled my head in and something didn't really seem right, um, about the way he was laying, he was laying very still me. and I walked into the room and I saw the blood on the pillow and, uh, uh, for a moment I had to leave the room, I actually went back to my room. And uh, I got out my phone and I walked back into my dad's room and I called my mother and I told her what I was seeing. I literally said I'm standing in my dad's room and there's blood all over his pillow and um, and he's dead. And at first she thought I actually um, meant my dog Petto because she kept asking about his dog bed. I said, no, not the dog bed, his, his bed's pillow. She said, well, if Petto's not dead, who's dead? I said, my dad, <laughs> and she just started screaming on the phone. And, um... And, uh, well, I stayed on the phone with her for a while. I went out to the front. I left the room. I paced in the front driveway. I stayed with her on the phone for a while. And I tried to get her to take a taxi, but she insisted she drive out. And um, and so she drove over. And I texted a, um, a friend of mine, Andrew, Andrew Michalski, something terrible had happened and would you please come over I didn't want to be alone Uh, and he did and we waited in the driveway together until my mother got there Uh, and then she went in the house by herself for less than 10 minutes more than 5 and she came back out, and, uh, and she pulled out her phone, and she called the police. Or, well, she dialed 911. And uh, the fire truck came first, and then the ambulance, and then squad cars.
0: Dellen wrote an obituary for the Toronto Star two weeks later. Part of it read, quote, His hope was for a time when cooperation would be the norm and competition was only friendly. He was frugal with himself and generous to others. The only people he feared were racists. He would answer a question with a story. He stepped carefully while advocating carefreeness. He could read and write five languages. He was patient and stubborn. He admired Christ, Gandhi, and Lindbergh. He believed animal welfare was a humanitarian effort. He was a good man in a careless world. He was my father, a master pilot. A service was held on Saturday, December 15th at a restaurant in Vaughan, Ontario. Dellen received 50% of the business, Millard Air and Millard Properties, but it would come out later in court that to Dellen this was a burden. He was quoted as saying, I took it all pretty hard. It was a responsibility I didn't want at the time. I was angry at my father for the things I had to do because he wasn't there to do them. And that was that. Wayne Millard's death was seen as a suicide and Dellen wasn't suspected of anything related to his death until the next year, May 2013. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com. Slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. It was after Dellen's arrest for the murder of Tim Bosma that police began looking into the disappearance of Laura Babcock, and at the same time, the death of Wayne Millard was revisited. Now it was going to be investigated as a homicide. In April 2014, Dellen was facing an additional charge of first-degree murder for the death of Wayne Millard. Mark Smith was not charged. The trial was set for summer 2018. Now, Dellen's mother, Madeline Burns, was steadfast in the support of her son. She described her only child as a, quote, gentle spirit. Madeline had transferred nearly $400,000 to Dellen to help him with his finances the same day that her son and Mark went for the test drive with Tim Bosma. She let Dellen park his trailer, with Tim's truck inside, in her driveway right after his murder. And after his arrest, she and Dellen's then-girlfriend, Christina Nudga, stayed in a hotel room to avoid the press, and Madeline was granted Dellen's power of attorney. Madeline wasn't always cooperative with police and helped her son violate a no-contact order he had while in jail awaiting trial. Madeline had assisted in the communication between Dellen and Christina, who had been charged with accessory for helping clean up the crime scene after Tim's murder. At the sentencing hearing for Tim's murder trial, Madeline read a letter defending her son. As his mother, I feel I am the only person now who truly understands who he is. She referred to Dylan as generous and protective of those he perceives as marginalized. She also said that he was able to swim as a toddler and was reading at age two and skiing by himself at age five, but it was time for the child prodigy to face his third murder trial. Wayne's body had been cremated So the prosecution once again had their work cut out for them, and that meant presenting mostly circumstantial evidence. We'll walk through it. It was a judge-alone trial, presided over by Justice Maureen Forstel, that began at the end of May 2018, and Dellen, now 32, pleaded not guilty. He was already serving two consecutive life sentences as he sat in the prisoner's box, listening to the case unfold and occasionally taking notes on a laptop. Assistant Crown Attorneys Jill Cameron and Ken Lockhart prosecuted again, and Dellen was represented by Raven Pillay, his lawyer during the trial for Tim Bosma. Jill Cameron presented a case that painted Dellen as a selfish man, driven by greed and the killing of his father. Disputed by the defense, the motive was this— Dellen was unhappy with what his father was spending his money on. After all, that was Dellen's inheritance. The fact that Wayne was putting more money into a business that Dellen wasn't all that interested in taking over was taking money out of Dellen's pocket and putting more of a burden on him for when he eventually took over Millard Air. The defense was building a case that showed Wayne as a depressed man, broken down by the stress of his business who had died by suicide. Based on the initial cause of death, Wayne's home was not treated as a crime scene by first responders. And because it wasn't a homicide investigation, there was no thorough search or seizure of evidence and no search warrant. Therefore, items in Wayne's room were never sent for forensic testing, like the blankets in his bed and the bag next to the bed which held the gun. Dr. David Evans, the coroner, testified. Remember, it was he who ruled the death a suicide. And in May of 2013, with the case getting a second look, he stood by his assessment. While on the stand, he said that when he entered the bedroom, he noticed Wayne's eye was absent. The soot on the hand and what I saw on the pillow and how his left hand was, I thought there was a reasonable chance he had done this himself, he said. But he'd never seen a bullet through an eye in a suicide case. He determined it was possible that Wayne had pointed the gun at his eye and pulled the trigger with his thumb. When asked if someone else could have pulled the trigger, Dr. Evans said, in retrospect, one can say that's a possibility. But he also said that he's not an expert in bullet trajectory and admitted that Dellen's insistence that his father was a depressed alcoholic influenced his decision on declaring the death a suicide. Now retired, Detective Hutchins said he found the scene suspicious and noted how long it took for 911 to be called. He said on the stand, quote, The first thing Dellen Millard did when he found his dad was not to call 911, but to call his mother, and then wait until she arrived at the home to call 911. He also said that he had called in homicide, but they didn't come to the scene. They had said they'd follow up the next day. The defense called into question the detective's memory, saying that he had only jotted down some notes while at the scene and only wrote them down officially later on. Dellen's alibi was that he'd spent the night at Mark Smitch's home, but his cell phone, one of them, that is, showed that he called a taxi service from near Mark's house around 1 a.m. on November 29th, and his phone pinged off a tower near he and his dad's house at about 6 a.m. when he would have been asleep at Mark's. Remember Mark Smith's girlfriend, Marlena Meneses? She'd testified in the trial for the Tim Bosma case, telling the court that Mark had told her Dellen had shot Tim. She also testified in the trial for the Laura Babcock case, where she said she saw Dellen and Mark testing out the animal incinerator. She testified at this trial as well. She described a gun that she once saw on Dellen's bed. It was, quote, Western-looking, with a wooden handle and a tube. This description matched the weapon that killed Wayne. She stated that at some time in 2012, No specificity on a date. Dellen had spent time with her and Mark. The three were hanging out at Mark's house, and Dellen had left to go on a date. He'd had two cell phones on him, and he left one at Mark's house. The three then walked to a store in Oakville, where Mark and Marlena parted ways with Dellen. Dellen had returned to Mark's sometime later that night and slept over, something that was unusual, as he'd never done that before. She said, Mark and I passed out at some point, and I remember waking up to Dellen standing over us saying he was back from his date. It was hours after he left. Days later, she found out that Dellen's father had died. Dellen's lawyer questioned her memory and her drug use. The general manager of the Waterloo Airport Chris Wood testified, which gave insight into motive, as well as Dellen's impulsivity. He told the court that Wayne Millard had recently gotten a certification the business needed, and it meant big things, that Millard Air would be moving toward aircraft service and repair. But immediately after Wayne's death, Dellen fired the staff and returned the government certification, which Wood described as a poor business decision, Dellen wasn't interested in running the family business, but he was going about it in a way that made no financial sense. He would have gotten more return by selling the business with the staff intact and with this valuable certificate. Janet Campbell, Wayne's girlfriend, testified that Wayne didn't show signs of depression. On the contrary, he seemed very happy in those final weeks. The business was moving in the direction he had envisioned. The pair were talking a few times a day, and Wayne had been more excited to celebrate her birthday that was coming up than she was. Dellen's lawyer cross-examined her, bringing up the fact that Wayne Millard was reclusive, a loner with a back injury and an addiction to alcohol. Janet confirmed that yes, he was reclusive, never a social butterfly, and that he was dealing with a lot of stress over the business. And an associate of Wayne's, Cam Harrod, testified that he was shocked upon hearing of the suicide. He'd recently spoken to Wayne and said he was very upbeat at the time. He described Wayne to CBC News, as many did, quote, He was a good guy, a great guy. Not your typical wealthy aviation guy. I don't want to say he was slovenly, but he didn't really care about his appearance. He was just a guy who grew up in aviation, drove an old vehicle, old pair of penny loafers, dirty, greasy hair, just a guy. And in September 2018, Dellen was found guilty of the murder of his father. Justice Maureen Forstall said, quote, Dellen Millard has repeatedly committed the most serious offense known to our law, he has done so with considerable planning and premeditation. In the murder of his father, he took advantage of the vulnerability of his father and betrayed his father's trust in him. The Crown read a victim impact statement written by Janet Campbell, which described Wayne's excitement about the future of his business and about his romantic relationship. She wrote, My hopes for the future were stolen, and so were Wayne's. He had son in his life and was looking forward to tomorrow. Before sentencing, the Crown discussed how Dellen and Mark had deliberately planned the murder of Laura Babcock by building, testing, and buying an incinerator for the sole purpose of disposing of bodies, how Dellen had bought a thirty-two caliber gun, which he later used to kill his father. Prosecutor Jill Cameron said that, quote, Not an ounce of remorse, a shred of gratitude, crept into his mind while he waited for his father to fall asleep so he could kill him. Mr. Millard is profoundly amoral and dangerous. He has devastated three families. Send a message to other criminals. You will be held accountable for every crime you have committed. There are times for mercy— there are times where an offender has had a difficult upbringing, but that is not the case here. There is no explanation for the crimes other than pure entitlement. She went on to say how Delan Millard had a, quote, seemingly insatiable appetite to kill people and asked if there's anyone he wouldn't kill. The prosecution requested that, in addition to the 50 years Dellen was already serving, that he receive another 25 years of parole ineligibility. The judge agreed. In December 2018, Dellen was given another life sentence for the murder, bringing the total to three life sentences, meaning he'd not be eligible for parole until he's in his hundreds. After the judge handed down her sentence, the people inside the courtroom applauded, including the mother of Laura Babcock, as well as some of the jurors from that trial. Reportedly, Dellen rolled his eyes as he was led away in cuffs. To hear Dellen describe it all, he's just a victim of a great conspiracy by police to pin three murders on him. Starting with the murder of Tim Bosma, in which Mark actually pulled the trigger, he said and then detectives digging into Dellen's history to charge him with two more murders and depict him as a narcissistic serial killer. In May 2022, while I was producing this miniseries, the Supreme Court of Canada declared it unconstitutional for judges to impose parole ineligibility periods of 25 years to be served consecutively for each murder rather than concurrently. Immediately after the news, Laura Babcock's mother, Linda, said, quote, Our life has been destroyed by their crime, and yet the courts feel that it is cruel to have them in prison for life. Why do the victims have less rights than the criminals? These judges don't understand the pain we go through every single day for our lifetime, and yet they give criminals some leniency, not wanting them to suffer too much. We suffer horribly every single day. I mean, it's been almost 10 years, and I still cry every day. Peter Roberts, who is Wayne Millard's cousin, said, quote, The murders Dylan Millard has committed are heinous, unforgivable, madness at its zenith, and he is only one of many. His parole reduced is a joke. Along with other families of victims, Linda Babcock is planning to fight this change. She wrote to her members of parliament recently. Part of that letter read, How are we ever to prevent multiple murders, if not with stricter sentences? If there's any hope of changing what has occurred in the courts, please stand up for the rights of the victims of crime and make sure that these people are never allowed into society again. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you want to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.